How many of you want the best for your children? Adults, how many of you want the very best for your kids? Have, have you ever thought about the fact that God as your father wants the best for you? Now, how many of you have had times when you knew what was best for your kids, but they didn't know what was best for them? And how many times has God known what was best for us, but we resisted what was best for us because we thought we knew what was best for us? When I was at uh, SOU 201 in Washington uh, two weeks ago, the students gave me a pair of cufflinks. Uh, you can't see them from here, but uh, these are very interesting cufflinks. On this one, there's a compass, so I know where I'm going. Since I'm directionally dysfunctional, that's helpful. On this one is a thermometer, temperature, so I can tell what temperature it is. So that's why these vents are up here, so that I stay cool while I'm preaching. In reality, all of us need a compass and a thermometer. We need to know if we're going in the right direction, and we need to check ourselves sometimes to find out if our spiritual temperature is where it needs to be. And if we are, in fact, safe because we're headed in the right direction and healthy because our temperature reading says that we're healthy. And so today I want us to deal with some things that will help us to make sure we are on track spiritually and that we have the heartbeat of God and that we are healthy children of the Father. And as we look at these words today, I want us to think about the fact that God knows what is best for us and wants the best for us more than we even want it for ourselves. And if I can get inside the mind and the heart of God to understand how much He wants His best for me, then I will be a willing recipient of all that He does to me, around me, in me, and through me because I'll know that my Father knows what is best for me. Now, before you came in this morning, about 20 men walked this room and prayed over every seat. We have prayed that today, that there would not be any wall that you could build, any defense that you could put up, any barrier or facade that you could create, that would hinder the Holy Spirit from speaking to you. We've prayed over every seat on the platform, every seat in the choir, every seat in this room from the front to the back for one reason. I believe that God wants to speak to us individually, and before He can ever speak to us corporately, He has to speak to us individually. He has to get my attention before I can ask him to get your attention. He has to do something in me before he can do something through me. And he has to do something in you as an individual before he can do something in your family or with your lost neighbor or with whoever it is that you're concerned about. 
And so if we're going to be ready for what God wants to do, then we've got to do what a good farmer does. We've got to till the soil. We've got to plant some seeds. We've got to expose the ground and pray for God to send a harvest. The Proverbs says in Proverbs 28, 13, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Now, before we get into some other passages, we're going to look at 1 John 1, and we're going to look at Psalm 51 this morning. But before we get into those, I want us to walk through what these words mean in Proverbs because they are the key, the hinge for which everything else opens in this sermon. If you don't understand what Proverbs 28, 13 says, then none of the other doors are going to open in this message as we walk through it. He who conceals, the word means to refuse to confess. To refuse to confess a wrong against God, which all sin is ultimately against God, or a wrong against others. He who refuses to confess a wrong. It doesn't matter if we feel bad about it, have we confessed it to God? Because here's the reason why that is so important. If I do not confess that sin cannot be canceled. You see, confession brings a canceling of the charge of that sin against me. And so I have to confess. Augustine said, before God can deliver us, we must undeceive ourselves. You see, I can think I'm doing pretty good in my life if I compare myself to other people because I can always find someone who's not doing as well as I am. But the comparison for my life is not how other people are doing. The comparison for my life is what I am doing in relationship to what God says I'm supposed to do and what, who God says I'm supposed to be. So I must undeceive myself. That word transgression is an offense. It, it can deal with sin. It can deal with evil deeds. It can deal with evil works or evil words. If I conceal, refuse to confess evil deeds or wrongs or, or sins, I will not prosper. Now, let me tell you why that's an important little phrase there. Will not prosper doesn't mean that I won't get blessed with houses and cars and all that the prosperity gospel teaches. What that word means in the Hebrew is I will not be able to move forward from where I am. What the writer of Proverbs is saying is if I conceal sin, if I do not confess sin, I am spiritually stuck. I'm in a rut. I'm in fact in a grave that I've dug for myself because I cannot go any further in my relationship with God. Not one step, no matter how sincere, no matter how passionate I might be, if I'm concealing something, I cannot go any further in my walk with God than where I am right now. In fact, I'll regress. I'll not make progress. And so he says, if I conceal an evil or a wrongdoing, that, I, that I'm just going to be stuck. I'm like my feet are in cement. I, I cannot move forward. David tried to do that. 
He tried to hide his sin, and Psalm 32 tells us about what happened with David because he tried to conceal the fact that he had sinned against God. But look at what he says, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That word confess simply means to, to agree with God, to acknowledge that God is right and to admit to God that I've been wrong. To forsake is to abandon. It's very simple. To cease doing that when he will find compassion. In an active sense, that word means that God will be merciful to you and God will show kindness to you. Now, if I want the mercy and the kindness of God in my life, I have to confess, not conceal. I have to say what God says about sin, and if I want to be blessed in my life, and if I want to make progress in my life, and if I want to meet him one day and not be ashamed at his coming, then I have to make sure that my slate is clean. That all the things that I could hide, I confess. You see, the costliest thing in the world is not diamonds. The costliest thing in the world is sin and salvation. Salvation, for us to be saved, cost God his son. Jesus had to die for the sins that we could conceal. Jesus had to die for sins, past, present, and future. And the costliest thing for me is sin because it breaks my fellowship with God. It does not break my relationship with Him because He will not deny me because He is my Father and I'm His child. But it does break my fellowship with Him and it breaks the ability for me to enjoy and understand the fullness of the life that God has offered me in Christ. So I need to do what God says I'm supposed to do about sin. And that's confess it and forsake it. Now here's something you and I need to understand. My sense of sin is in direct proportion to my proximity to God. My sense of sin is in direct proportion to my proximity to God. That's why sometimes we can sit in a worship service and say, you know, I don't feel like there's anything wrong with me. You see, the closer I am to God, the more sensitive I am to sin and to its effects on me. The further I'm removed from God, God can have somebody preaching a great sermon. I mean, you could sit and listen to Jonathan Edwards preach sinners in the hands of an angry God where people fell on their knees and grabbed a hold of the back of the pews and held on because they thought God was literally going to open up hell and swallow them up. You could hear that and be unmoved if you're so far away from God that you're not sensitive to the sin that's in your life. You see, my sensitivity to God determines my sensitivity to sin. Whether I shrug my shoulders and go, oh well, everybody else does that, or whether I realize that I have sinned not against just other people, but most of all against a holy God. Because the most miserable person in the world is not a lost person. Did you know that? The most miserable person in the world is not somebody who's lost because they've never known what it means to be saved. The most miserable person in the world is a backslidden believer that's gotten comfortable with their backslidden condition. 
because they can't be happy in the world and they can't be happy in the church and they don't know where to go and where to turn because nothing makes them happy because they're out of fellowship. Now let me give you a definition of sin. Sin is the condition. It's not on the screen, so you can write it down. Sin is a condition in which I make myself the center of my life. Sin is the condition in which I make myself the center of my life and either ignore God I make myself the center of my life and either ignore God or push Him to the edges. Sin is a condition where I make myself the center of my life and I either ignore God, just pretend like He's not there, don't feel like I have to answer to Him, or I push Him to the edges of my life. I push Him to the circumference of my life. So what happens is some people try to conceal sin. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They sinned and they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed and they began to cover them up. And man, since our first parents in the garden, has been trying to cover up for his sin. And man, since the first parents in the garden, has been trying to hide from God because of shame. And God since like our first parents in the garden has come looking for us when we're ashamed and when we're trying to hide and conceal he comes looking because he wants fellowship with his children and he knows and you know and I know that sin breaks that fellowship. Know what happened with Adam and Eve? Adam blamed Eve. That's what every man does. Blames his wife. It's her fault. Eve blamed the serpent. Ultimately, they blamed God. The woman you gave me. The serpent you made. You see, anytime I conceal by trying to blame somebody else for what I've done or for what I've thought or for what I've said, I've in fact blamed God. God, it's your fault because if I wasn't in this situation, if I didn't know those people, if I wasn't in those relationships, then I wouldn't have sinned against you. So it's really your fault, God, that I've sinned. And so they began to conceal it. Cain learned a really good lesson from his parents. When approached about the murder of his own brother, he said, am I my brother's keeper? It continues on down to Achan in Joshua chapter 7 when God said, there's a portion that is to be held for me and you're not to take any of the silver or gold of Jericho because that's mine. Those are possessions that are meant for me. And Achan stole some of it and they began to go through the tribes and then through the families and Achan would never confess that he was the one that had stolen it as if he could get away with it knowing that it was hidden in his tent and would be found. And it cost Achan his entire family and his own life. David tried to hide it. For over a year, he said, when I kept silent, my bones waxed old within me. It affected him physically, and sin does affect us physically. Ananias and Sapphira tried to conceal the fact that they had kept a portion. They said they were giving their all to God, but in fact, they had kept a portion for themselves. You see, when we conceal, it corrupts us. 
The concealing of sin corrupts not only me, but it corrupts everybody around me. It corrupted David's family. It corrupted Achan's family. It would have corrupted the church had it not been dealt with in Acts chapter 5. It corrupts you, it corrupts others, and it corrupts everything you touch. And so sin must be dealt with, and it must be dealt with seriously. And, and how do we conceal it? Turn to 1 John chapter 1. And I want you to notice three times where John, the apostle of love, the one who was the one that apparently from a heart standpoint was the closest of all the disciples to Jesus, the last of the disciples to die, who talked more about love than any of the other disciples, this is what he says, 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Three times, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10, he uses this phrase, if we say. Now, some commentators believe that John may have had a person in the church in mind when he was writing this who was defending himself, although everyone in the church knew that there was sin in their lives. Whether that's true or not, John is presenting a hypothetical situation that if we were to come into the presence of God and say these things, what things? That we have no sin. Now it's a progressive, or rather a, a regressive kind of condition. First of all, in verse 6, we're lying to each other. We're lying to each other. That means that we're hypocrites. If we say we don't have any sin, we're lying to each other, and that's hypocritical. It's wearing a mask, which is what the word hypocrite means, to pretend to be somebody that you're not. You know, we can put on our Sunday clothes and still be wearing our Saturday night attitude. If you put on your Sunday clothes and somebody that works with you comes to church and sees you in church and is shocked or surprised, that's lying to others. That's being a hypocrite. And he says, we, we lie to others. And the reason we can't do the work of God like he wants us to do is because we don't cooperate with the work that God's trying to do in us. And that is to help us to understand how seriously he views sin. And so the first thing is we lie to each other. That's hypocrisy. Verse 8, we lie to ourselves. We lie to ourselves. Now that's not hypocrisy. That's duplicity. We lie to ourselves. We begin to tell ourselves some things for so long that we believe we're telling ourselves the truth when actually we're telling ourselves a lie. We not only lie to others, but we now begin to even lie to ourselves and believe our own lies. 
by trying to straddle the fence or talking out of both sides of our mouths. Phyllis McGinley in her book, The Providence of the Heart, says sin has always been an ugly word, but it's been made more so in a new sense over the last half century. It has been made not only ugly, but passe. People are no longer sinful. They are only immature or underprivileged or frightened or more particularly sick. C.S. Lewis said the safest road to hell is the gradual one. You see, most of us are not guilty of committing some great sin that everybody knows about. Most of us are guilty of committing little sins that have built up over time and we've not dealt with them because we've not faced the consequences of them. So we think that we are better off than we really are. And because we don't go out and do a lot of things that the world does, and because we come to church and we give some money and, and we serve or we sing, we think somehow that we, we get graded on a curve. That God is not as serious about our sin as believers as He is about the sin of the lost. But the sin that I committed this past week against God is just as serious and cost God just as much blood as the sins that I committed before I knew I needed a Savior. Jesus died for sin, period. All of our sin. It cost Him His blood. We lie to ourselves. And then finally, verse 10, we lie to God. That's betrayal. Verse 6 is hypocrisy. Verse 8 is duplicity. Verse 10 is betrayal and borders on blasphemy. We lie to God. We make Him a liar. We call God a liar, and we know that Satan is the father of all lies. And so we put God and Satan in the same category if we say we don't have any sin. That God is a liar. And his word is not in us. Verse 6, we're not living by the truth. Verse, verse 8, the truth is not in us. And verse 10, the word is not in us. All the while saying, I'm okay, you're okay. If you won't talk to me about my sin, I won't talk to you about your sin. Let's just hold each other at arm's length. And let's not be honest. I want to give you three examples. We'll pick them up later on in the message. But I want to give you three to write down right now because they are important. And then later on in the message, you'll see these again and what sins they were guilty of. Saul lied to the prophet. Remember King Saul? He lied to the prophet when he was told to go out and slaughter Agag. He didn't do it. And then he lied to the prophet. He said, oh, we did it. Oh, well, we really didn't do it. The people made me not do it. So he lied to the prophet. Uh, Samson lied to himself. Samson thought, I can live in sin, I can live in these immoral relationships, I can violate my Nazarite vow, and it will not have any consequences. Every time the enemy comes, I'll get up and strike him down, just like I did the last time he came. And one day he got up, and the, he did not know, the Scripture says, that the power had left him. Ladies and gentlemen, there can come a day when we do not deal with sin, when the anointing and the protection and the power of God 
is removed from us and we don't know it until it's too late. And then Satan binds us and blinds us. And we spend the rest of our life like Samson grinding at a wheel, going nowhere. Saul lied to the prophet. Samson lied to himself. Judas lied to the Son of God. You remember what it says about Judas who went out, when he went out to betray Jesus, it says, and he went out and it was night. There's always a darkness when we lie and try to deceive God. There's always a nighttime of the soul. When we pretend and we're not what we're supposed to be. Now hold your place in 1 John 1 and turn to Psalm 51. And I want you to see what happened to David when he concealed his sin. Psalm 51. <clears throat> and let's see what happened to David. This is Psalm, Psalm 32 is his psalm of admission of what he had done. Psalm 51 is his psalm of confession about where he had been and what he wanted God to do in his life. And I want you to look at it. We're just going to hop through these verses, and I want you to see what all was affected by David's sin. First of all, verse 3, my sin is ever before me. His eyes were affected. His eyes were affected. All he could see was his sin. He couldn't see any of the good things God was doing. All he could see, everything before him reminded him of his sin. My sin is ever before me. Verse 6, you desire truth in the innermost being. His mind was affected. His mind was affected. He knew that there was duplicity inside. He knew that there was hypocrisy. He was still going about his kingly functions, but he knew that he wasn't right in his head. Verse 8, make me to hear joy and gladness. His ears were affected. He could come into the temple, into the tabernacle. He could come into the presence of God. He could hear the songs that he wrote that the people were singing, but they had no joy in them. It was like Paul says in Corinthians, it's like tinkling brass. It's just like sounds and noise, but there's no joy in what's going on. His ears were affected. Verse 8, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. His body was affected. Sin affects us physically. We may not think so, but it does. I don't know if you have keep up with this kind of thing in the news, but there is a school system now in America that is giving vaccines to 11-year-olds in the public schools for sexually transmitted diseases. Sin affects the body. And you don't have to be old for it to do that. Not only that, his heart was affected. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. His heart was affected. He needed God to clean out his heart. His sense of God's presence was gone. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence. 
He knew that God was there, but he couldn't sense the presence of God anymore. I'm not talking about a feeling or emotion. I'm just talking about an awareness of the presence of God. David had known that. He had known it on those Galilean hills when he was shepherding those sheep at night. He had known it in the early days when God had blessed him and had protected him from Saul. And now he says, I sense that I've lost your presence. And then finally, in verse 12, his worship and fellowship were broken. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. His worship and his fellowship were broken. So what should we do? Back to 1 John 1, 9, we should confess it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, here's a good question. Saul and David, I think you could propose that David was a greater sinner than Saul. I think the evidence of Scripture would give you the understanding that King Saul was not as bad of a sinner as David was because David committed adultery and murder. Saul lied to the prophet. He consulted with a witch. And so if you take the effects, it may be that you could say Saul was a worse sinner. So why did God cut off the kingdom of Saul, but he didn't cut off the kingdom of David? In fact, the kingdom of David is still the line through which Messiah would come, and it is on the throne of David, not the throne of Saul, that Jesus will one day reign in Jerusalem. It is because David was a great sinner, but David was a greater repenter. Saul was a great sinner, but he was a great excuse maker. And he was a great blamer of other people. You never see Saul admitting he's got a problem. You remember what happened? After he said, the people did this, the people asked for this. And then he turns to Samuel the prophet and he says, go with me before the people so that they will think everything is okay between me and you and God. Saul's epitaph was look good at all cost. And that is the epitaph of many people who could have a deep and intimate relationship with God and friendship with God and fellowship with God, but they've worried so much about appearances that they've missed what God wanted to do. And so let's go back to Saul and Samson and Judas. Saul was guilty of pride. Saul was guilty of pride. He lied to the prophet, and the reason he lied to the prophet was he was guilty of pride. Samson was guilty of lust. And because his lust consumed him, he lied to himself. Judas was guilty of coveting. And because he was guilty of coveting, he sold the Son of God out for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. And by the way, of the Ten Commandments in coveting, Paul said, I did okay until I got to that one. And that one made me guilty. And when you're guilty of coveting, you're guilty of breaking all the other commandments of God. Because coveting leads to other gods. And coveting is any attitude that says, I want what somebody else has. Thing, 
stuff, wife, husband. I want what somebody else has. When you do not bless what another person has and have no desire to have it for yourself, that's where the coveting line is drawn. And Judas wanted to be in control. And those three, pride, lust, and coveting, can ruin your life. If we confess, if we agree with God, Lord, it was sin, I was wrong, you were right. You see, I have to live with myself and you have to live with yourself. And my worst enemy to my spiritual growth is me. Your worst enemy to your spiritual growth is the person sitting in your seat. The reason you and I cannot grow and the reason you and I do not have a fresh touch from God and the reason you and I do not walk in a, in a spirit in a time of revival is because our greatest hindrance to that is us individually. It's not the people around us. It's not somebody else that we point fingers at. He says if we confess our sins, personal, not my neighbor's sins, not my wife's sins, not my kid's sins. It's an admission that I've sinned against everything that God says is righteous and holy. And it is not only confessing, it is renouncing and it is judging it the way God judges it. Saying what God says about it. And then he says he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Now, somewhere in the margin of your Bible or in your notes, I want you to write this. He's faithful to his word and righteous toward his son. He is faithful to his word. He will do what he says. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And he is righteous toward his son who is righteousness on our behalf. See, if I have a problem with the law, I need a lawyer. If I'm sick, I need a doctor. But if I've got a sin problem, I need a righteous judge, Jesus Christ. Now somewhere, if you haven't gotten anything I've said up to this point, you need to get this. You need to write it down, as my friend Jay Strike would say, with pen, pencil, lipstick, or mascara. You need to write this down. When Satan talks to me about God... He lies. When Satan talks to me about God, he lies. Genesis. Has God said, you will not die for you will be as gods. When Satan talks to me about God, he lies. But listen, when Satan talks to God about me, he often tells the truth. When Satan talks to God about me, he often tells the truth. And so when Satan comes before God and says, here's Cat, and he's guilty of this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, he's right. Because he knows. But what he doesn't understand is that I have an advocate before the Father who says, you're right, 
But here's the blood that was spilled for him, and his name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and he's asked me to forgive him of those things, and whether or not you understand it or not, I, my blood cleanses him, First John, my blood cleanses him from all sin. What sin? The sin that I confess. And so, when Satan talks to me about God, he'll lie. Oh, God's not going to judge you. God's not going to hurt you. God's not going to harm you. And we got a lot of preaching like that in America today that makes everybody want to feel good about living in sin. And that's a lie. Because there are consequences. If I go to a doctor and he tells me something's wrong, I want him to tell me something's wrong. I don't want him to look at me and say, I'm, I just don't want to hurt your feelings. I want to know. I need a lawyer who can argue my case before a judge. I need an advocate who can argue my case before a holy God. One who has died for my sin. And so, not only do I need God to deal with it, and I need my advocate, Jesus Christ, and I can confess it and say, man, I just keep doing the same thing. I keep coming back, I confess, I keep coming back, I confess, I confess, I confess. And you should. You should die daily. You should take up your cross daily. I should do that. But John has another if clause that you may have missed in the three if you says. Now he says something else. If we say that's concealing sin, but if we confess that's confessing sin, and if we walk in the light as He is in the light, that's conquering sin. Concealing can move to confessing and can move to conquering. You see, it's not enough for me to be freed from the penalty of sin. I also need to be freed from the power of sin. I need to know what it means to be an overcomer. So how do I conquer it? If we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now there's a real important little thought here that you need to get. Not according to the light, but in the light. John did not say if you walk according to the light, if you keep the Ten Commandments, if you keep the golden rule, then you can have fellowship with me. He says you walk in it. A religious person and a moral person can walk according to the light and not be in the light and not be saved. You say, well, I'm doing unto others I'd have them doing to me I keep the golden rule that's walking according to the light walking in the light is God empowering me to do what I wouldn't do otherwise and what I don't have the power to do otherwise John also says in this epistle as he is this will wipe out most of us right here as he is so are we in this world not as he was as he is as he is, nine words broken down in three parts, 
Three words in each part. As he is, so are we in this world. Now, how am I going to be as he is? How am I going to be that in this world? As defiled as it is, as corrupt as it is, as much pressure and as much temptation as comes my way. How am I going to do that? He says, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. But here's how you walk in the light. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus is the light of the world. And so if I'm walking in Christ, I'm walking in the light. If I'm walking and listening to the word, I'm walking in the light. You are now clean, the scripture says, through the word. Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Why is it that we teach children to memorize scripture and as adults we never do it? Because we understand deep down inside that if a child has the word of God in his heart that when sin and temptation comes his way that he will have something in his heart and in his conscience that reminds him that sin is against God. And so we in Awana and in school and in other places we teach kids to memorize the word of God. Why? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. So when I'm about to step into something that's sin, God brings a verse to mind. There's no temptation that has come to you, but it's common to man. But God has made a way of escape, which removes I can't help myself. It's all gone. So God's Word is the way that we walk in the light. How do I expect to confess and conquer sin if I don't stay in the Word. Because ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is spiritual suicide. Ignorance is costly. But when I'm in the light, then worship of God is an overflow of God doing a work in my life. Listen to what he says in the book of Micah. In Micah, he says, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and, and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Now, let me just make this real practical. We can't do this because we didn't program the lights for this. But you see these lights up here? These little black lights up here? Those lights are fixed in such a way that if we wanted to, we can take one of those lights and we can throw a spot, a narrow spot of light on any individual in this room. So if I'm walking along and I just decide I want to say a word to Andy, I can walk over here and I can say, Andy, stand up. And right then, every light in the room could go off and one light, Andy would be in a circle of light. It wouldn't be on Wendy. It wouldn't be over here on Jerry. It'd be right here on Andy. That's how we can focus those lights. We can just spotlight anybody. You know what, folks? 
we're under a spotlight. You can't see it, but it's there. And when you're under a spotlight, you can't hide. You can't conceal. You're just out there in the open. 